and recently retired, he and his wife were at last taking a well-deserved holiday exploring their home country of Australia. So they arrived in the north in Cairns and Nita and I, en route back from Papua New Guinea, found ourselves sitting across them in a cable car climbing high above the rainforest above Cairns. So we heard their story and they heard ours. Very briefly, you know, what are you doing? Where are you from? So he turned to me and said, you're a church minister then. And when I answered in the affirmative, he said, I don't know why all the religions don't get together. After all, we all believe basically the same thing. Well, it was a statement and not a question. And maybe I'm a coward. I didn't think it was diplomatic hovering above the rainforest, the treetops to start an argument. And in any case, a few minutes later, we disembarked and climbed out and we didn't see them again. But his comments stuck in my mind for it wasn't the first time I've heard it and it won't be the last time and I'm sure you've heard it or maybe even expressed it at times. Of course, it's not all that difficult to refute. For it's patently obvious that all religions don't believe the same thing. Some believe God is in everything, pantheism. Some believe God has wound up the world like a giant watch, no longer interferes in it, what's called deism. Other people believe in theism, that God actively intervenes in the world, but they have divergent views about how and through whom God has intervened, Buddha, Muhammad, Guru Nana, Krishna, Jesus, etc., how God has made himself known. And add to this religious practice, and almost anything goes, and has gone in the past, ranging from mass suicide the murder of your enemies, child sacrifice and cult prostitution. But I guess that what the Brisbane Butcher was really saying was, we should really forget all these differences and focus on the lowest common denominator. That there is a God of some kind who wants us all to get along together somehow. Otherwise, we just end up falling out or worse. However, it is striking and surprising that if we take the record of the Bible, this book, seriously, the first murder in human history was caused by religion. And in particular, by the fact that God did not go along with multi-faith worship, but ruled one kind in and another kind out. Now, to accept that, that this is really the case, means going against the grain of popular thinking and political correctness. Or in the title of our series for Book of Hebrews, it means, in fact, living by faith. That is, accepting God's word and judgment rather than our own. And foundational to all this, where we start is how we approach God in the first place. How do we find acceptance with God? So if you look at Hebrews 11 verse 1, having defined what faith is, now faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see, the writer then says, this is what the ancients were commended for. Verse 2. 
And then he starts a long list of these ancients, these people from the past. And he begins with the first man of faith, a man called Abel. And his subject in this verse is our subject today, which is faith and worship. So look at our verse for today. This is very simple. Hebrews 11 verse 4. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. Now, this is very simple. This is not contrived. There are three points the writer makes about Abel and his faith. First of all, the sacrifice he offered. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Secondly, the commendation he received. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And thirdly, the message he still speaks. By faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. Now, in order to understand this, we need to know the story that he's referring to, which is way back in Genesis chapter 4. So, if you've got your finger in Hebrews 11, or your electronic bookmark in your palm, if you're using one of those, which in lot of, most of the men use these kind of things. But anyway, um, keep a space in Genesis 4, and also in Hebrews 11, because we'll be dotting between these two, to look at what the account says about faith and worship. So, I'm going to simply speak about these three points. Alright? First of all then, the sacrifice Abel offered. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Now, the first person in human history to appear in the hall of faith is not the first man, Adam, but his son, Abel. The first man, Adam, sadly, is not an example of faith, but an example of unbelief. Instead of believing God's word, he doubted God's word and God's intentions. Read this all in Genesis 3, great tragic chapter of human history. And instead of acting in faith in regard to God, he disobeyed God's word. What was the result? The result was that he and his wife Eve were barred from Eden, thrown out of paradise, and more importantly, driven from God's presence. So, unlike them, the two sons that were subsequently born to them, first Cain and then Abel, had no personal experience of what it was like living in paradise in Eden. And they had no personal experience that their parents had of walking intimately with God, knowing God personally. But, that did not turn them into atheists or agnostics. No, they knew there was a God. Not just because their parents had told them that was the case, but because despite the fall, despite the fallen nature they had inherited from Adam and Eve, their parents, they were still made in the image, made to know God. Even though they had no personal experience of living in Eden and walking with God, yet they were still worshippers. So it was with them, and so it is with every human being who carries the same spiritual genes. Though we may try to suppress the knowledge of God, and though others try to eradicate the knowledge of God through coercion, the state, through ridicule, society, through propaganda, the media, it is an impossible task. 
In every society on earth, you will find one inescapable fact about human beings. We are all worshippers. Now, this applies in the remotest parts of the world, such as where we visited recently in Papua New Guinea, with 800 different languages and cultures, and you fly over the rainforest and there's communities in every valley. Many of them have had no contact with one another, which is why they speak different languages, and yet all of them are worshippers. But it applies in the most advanced societies on earth, such as our own. In a recent Murray poll in the UK for the Horizon programme on BBC Two, the headline said, Britain's unconvinced on evolution. Only 48% of the population answered this question in the affirmative. The evolution theory says that humankind has developed over millions of years from less advanced forms of life. God had no part in this process. Despite the amazing propaganda, the huge airtime given to those who believe that, the ridicule heaped upon those who suggest there is a creator or even intelligent design in the universe, despite that, still only 48% of the population believe the theory. The findings prompted surprise from the scientific community. Lord Martin Rees, president of the Royal Society, said... It is surprising that so many people should still be sceptical about Darwinian evolution. We shouldn't be surprised. The book of Ecclesiastes puts it like this. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11. Within, deep, within each one of us is a longing to know God, because that's the way we're made. Well, you didn't have to prove the existence of God to Cain and Abel. No, their problem was not accepting whether God existed, but how to approach him in a way that was acceptable to him. And so we read in Genesis 4, verse 3, that in due course, these two brothers came to God, tried to approach God. And each of them brought an offering to God representing two ways to worship. And we will discover that there are only two ways to worship. Cain, who worked the soil, we're told, in Genesis 4 verse 2, brought an offering of his produce to the Lord. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel, who kept flocks, verse 2, brought an animal offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, if you were writing this as a textbook on multi-faith worship, you could write the next sentence. Then the Lord commended both Cain and Abel for giving to him from what they had, and they all lived happily ever after. No simmering anger, no murderous rage, and all the religions of the world could have lived together in harmony forever. That might be our story, but it is not his story. God's story. No, God's verdict on these two worshippers and their offerings is radically different. Here's God's verdict. Abel, the Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour. Or in the words of Hebrews 11, verse 4, by faith... Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. But why, we ask? 
Why was Abel's sacrifice better? Did Cain just make a bad career choice of seeds and crops instead of sheep and cows? Was, is God's acceptance of some and rejection of others arbitrary? Isn't sincerity enough? Well, to explore the answer, and really I hope by now you understand that this is absolutely important. It's a supreme... You couldn't think of anything more important. Is there a right or a wrong way to approach God? Okay, to explore the answer, look at the second thing we learn about Abel and his faith. Not just the sacrifice he offered, the commendation Abel received. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. You see, I've highlighted on the screen the words commended and spoke well. For one good reason, it is the same word in the original Greek. Just translated differently to give a different kind of flavour to it. The word means to bear witness to. It's a kind of legal term, to attest to something, to affirm something. So we learn in these, this little section that there are two related reasons for God's commendation. Let's take them in reverse order from the text. First of all, Abel is commended for his faith, for the gift he brought. It says, God spoke well of his offerings. Abel brought the animals and God said, thank you. That's good. That's right. He affirmed that these were the kind of offerings that were acceptable to him. On the other hand, when Cain brought his offerings of the fruit of the soil, they didn't pass the test. They didn't meet with God's approval. Now, the big question here is, did Cain and Abel know before they brought their offerings what kind of offerings pleased God or not? Think of an example. Think of two men who both like the same girl. On her birthday, one of them brings perfume and the other one brings a huge box of chocolates. She accepts the perfume and the suitor who brings them. But she rejects the chocolates and the man who brought them. She said, I don't like chocolates, they make me fat. Now, if she adds, as you and everyone knows, then the young man who brought the chocolates is only to blame for his gift. However, if he and the other suitor had no idea at all what their preferences were, then the perfume bearer just struck lucky. While the other man didn't, she may have said, I love chocolates, but I can't stand perfume. Now, to a far more serious matter for Cain and Abel, and us. Did they know what kind of sacrifice pleased God before they offered it? If you read Genesis 4, and I appreciate the drama the children did, but if you read the story really carefully, you will discover that there is no clear statement of anything about what they offered and whether God, why God accepted it. Some people say the brothers didn't know at all. This was the first time that God revealed that he could only be approached through the sacrifice of a living thing, an animal. Uh, something that he made absolutely clear later on through the law given to Israel through Moses. Others, however, say they must have known or at least had some hints about it beforehand. There is some evidence to suggest that Adam and Eve 
would have told their sons about certain things. For example, when Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the ground. Did that mean, therefore, that the produce of the ground was cursed and acceptable to God? Perhaps more clearly, do you remember the story in Genesis, if you've never read the story, go home and read it, but in Genesis 3 when they sinned and they discovered they were naked and it says that God killed some animals and used the the skins to make a covering for them. The word covering means to cover their nakedness, their shame. Would that not have implied that animal sacrifices were needed in order to approach God? Now we can't be absolutely certain about this. But I want to show that it, in actual fact, at this point, it doesn't really matter. Stay with me. There is another reason why on balance, I think it's more likely they did know what God required, which connects with the second reason for God's commendation. Look again, it says, by faith he was commended as a righteous man. Faith is responding to what God has said, to what God has revealed. An Abel is commended for his faith by God and declared by God, therefore, to be a righteous man because he obeyed what God required, realising that only the sacrifice of a living thing could meet his need. Uh, The 17th century Puritan John Owen comments, Cain considered God only as creator and preserver. The faith of Abel was fixed on God, not only as creator, but as redeemer also. So these two reasons are linked together. Look again at the full verse. By faith, Abel was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. What of Cain? Well, instead of commendation for Cain, we discover he receives condemnation. So look at the absolute contrast. Two related reasons for Cain's condemnation. The first is the gift he brought. He brought produce from the ground. Uh, Some writers suggest, and the children's drama reflected this, uh, that he brought a kind of superficial offering, just, you know, the leftovers. It's not absolutely clear. But that his offering revealed his inner character before God. In the NIV application commentary on Hebrews, George Guthrie writes, The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, while he rejected Cain and his offering. Cain had not done what was right, Genesis 4 verse 7, revealing that he himself was not right spiritually. And this leads to the second reason for Cain's condemnation. Not just the nature of his offering, but the the unbelief he showed. I've suggested that on balance, Cain ought to have known what pleased God. But let's stop for a moment. Let's suppose that up to this point, neither brothers knew what pleased God. So what happens when Cain brings an unacceptable gift to the Lord that is rejected. Is it a fatal mistake? Does God say to Cain, you've blown it now, you've brought me something I don't want, be gone. Not at all. Seeing how angry and upset Cain is when his offering is rejected, the Lord offers him a chance to put it right. That is to bring an acceptable offering. And a warning, what will happen if he doesn't? Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, 
Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Sadly, Cain fails to put things right. He continues in his unbelief. He fails to heed the warning, and the result is that sin, like a lion crouching at the door, springs up, overpowers him, and he kills his brother in a fit of rage. The result is that we have a murdered man, Abel, and Cain has to spend the rest of his life under a curse as the marked man. Worst of all, Cain spends his future estranged from the presence of God, which is the worst penalty for him and for anyone. And all because he failed to obey God's word. He failed to live by faith. He said, my offering's as good as his offering. I'll bring what I like, not what God wants. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, the third thing we learn about Abel's faith, the writer says, even though he's been dead a long time, here's the message he still speaks. By faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. So, here's a remarkable thing. A man from the first humankind, the first human family on earth, he's been dead all those years, he still speaks to people in Charlotte Chapel here today. 2006. So what does he say? Well, he relates to the most fundamental issue on earth. How to worship God acceptably. As we've said, we can't be certain that they knew beforehand what pleased God. But after this, they and no one else needs to be in any doubt about the kind of sacrifice you need to bring if God is going to accept you. None of us here can say, I didn't know that. So what kind of sacrifice does God require? Well, what it tells us is, only the death of a living thing will satisfy. Only a blood sacrifice. Now, here's a great test. As soon as I say that, and as soon as you see that on the screen, what's your immediate reaction? He said, oh, blood, gore, violence, pagan religion, you know. There's all sorts of stuff about this. It's a, it's a hot topic at the moment, not just among Christians in general, even among evangelicals. But you see, that's what we learned from Abel. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering. Only if you understand why a blood sacrifice is necessary will you understand the seriousness of the problem that human beings face when they try and approach God. That's why we sang that hymn, Oh, how can I, I'll have to quote it in the old version, How can I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear and on my naked spirit bear the uncreated beam? How can a sinner approach a holy God? Is it just a casual problem? You know, all that God looks for is, you know, our best that we can give and give him a bit of money and do a bit of charity and try and look, you know, live with your neighbour and, you know, you'll probably get in the top half because God marks on the curve and you'll probably be okay, you know. That's what most people think. But God says, no, this is so serious. Because the wages of sin is death. And in order to satisfy, something has got to die, a living thing. That's why crops won't do. A blood sacrifice is necessary. And later in human history, if you trace... You see, this is, 
this is not this is an old story, but it's the same story because the Bible has the same story throughout. It's really one great theme. How can you approach God? So when God chose his people Israel, he said, If you're going to approach me, you need to do it through a priest who brings the sacrifice of an animal. Uh, earlier in Hebrews nine you'll read the sacrifice the law requires, very key verse, Hebrews nine twenty two. In fact, the writer says the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. That's the principle. Only two kinds of religion. But the law was only temporary, the writer says. It was a shadow, a picture of something greater. That God had a much greater plan by which human beings might be reconciled to him. And it was such a costly plan, it involved him coming to earth in the person of his son and dying on a cross. And when Jesus began his ministry, John the Baptist looked at him and what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He understood. He saw. And God's plan was fulfilled, this amazing plan. When Jesus died on the cross, bearing our sin, suffering the consequence we deserved, dying in our place, the sacrifice Jesus made. And that was why when the t- Jesus died on the cross and cried, it is finished, the curtain in the temple that separated sinners from a holy God was torn from top to bottom. The kingdom of heaven is open to all believers, to those who come through Christ. That is God's new and living way. If you are here a couple of weeks ago, that's where we began our series in Hebrews chapter 10. He says to these Christians from a Hebrew background, Jewish background, he says, you don't want to go back to the old way. It was just a picture, it's a shadow. Stick with the reality. This is what he says in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that is the presence of God, how do you do it? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled by what? You sprinkle with blood. Sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And in the chapter that follows Hebrews 11, which is Hebrews 12, he speaks about what it means to come to God through Jesus. See, what he says to these Christians, if you're a Christian this morning, this is God's word to you. If you are not a Christian, this is God's word that he offers to you. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, a new agreement, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When Cain murdered his brother, he thought no one had seen what he did. But God saw and he said to Abel, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out from the ground. The blood of Abel speaks of retribution. But the blood of Jesus, the only truly innocent victim, speaks of redemption. Paying the price we could never pay. Forgiveness. That's why when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. He didn't say, Father, see what they're doing and put them right. So in the opening letter of, opening verse of his letter to the Christians in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul lists all the spiritual blessings we've received in Christ and he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And the simple message this morning, the gospel message, the good news, is this. The only way to approach God is the way that he has chosen. The one he has chosen. Coming like Abel in faith. Not in thinking we have anything to offer to God. In the words of the hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Later in that letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says to them, you're saved by faith. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I've almost finished. My voice is almost finished. Glad to know. Here's the conclusion. Though Abel has long since died, the first human being to die because of religion, he still speaks to us today. And so does Cain. For they represent, as we've seen, two ways to worship. Those who come to God by faith in his son Jesus receive God's commendation. And the best known verse in the Bible puts it like this. You should know it. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes, faith word again, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Most people know that verse. They don't know the verses that follow. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but the world might be saved through him. Now here's John 3 verse 18 which speaks about condemnation. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands, what? Condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So the simple question, and yet the most important question for every one of us here is this. Which way are you following? Which way do you worship? There are only two alternatives. God's way and our way. One leads to salvation and eternal life. The other one leads to condemnation. It's the same story. It's Cain and Abel. Abel still speaks to us today. And the question I leave you with this is this. What legacy will you and I leave? What message will our lives still speak when we've gone? By faith, he still speaks. Not what will they say in the eulogy at the funeral service, but what will God say about our lives? What's his epitaph over our lives? Are we included in the roll call of faith, like Abel, by faith? I hope so. Let's pray together.